Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've been going down the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We are now all the way down to number three on their list. My gosh. Which means that on this episode, we'll be talking about Maurice Jarre's score for the gloriously photographed 1962 sweeping historical drama, Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia was written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson based on the memoir Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence. It was produced by Sam Spiegel and it was directed by David Lean. John, give us a sketch of Lawrence of Arabia. Well, it's hard to sketch it because it is big. It's huge. It's about this guy Lawrence. He goes to Arabia. There's your sketch. T.E. Lawrence is played by Peter O'Toole. Sharif Ali of the Harith tribe is played by Omar Sharif. Auda Abutai of the Hawitat tribe is played by Anthony Quinn. Prince Faisal is played by Alec Guinness. It also stars Claude Rains, Jose Ferrer, Jack Hawkins, and others. So the movie takes place during World War I, when Lawrence is a British army officer who is sent out into Arabia from Cairo to appreciate the situation with the native Arab revolt against the Turks. Once he gets there, he winds up inspiring and uniting different Arab tribes and spearheading the guerrilla warfare that they wind up undertaking against the Turkish army. All the while, we're given to wonder what Lawrence's motivations are, whose interest he's serving, be they British, Arab, his own, or some imagined destiny that he doesn't even seem to understand himself. Good enough? Yeah, good enough. So at the end of last episode, Andy, you said that you had only seen this movie before when you were a kid, right? Yeah, it had been years. It had been years. It's the same for me. It had been a lot of years. But I want, <laughs> I want to ask you, you know how in this movie, the Arabs call Lawrence Orens, right? Mm-hmm. When you were a kid, did you think that they were calling him Orange? <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, when I was a kid, did I stay awake through the whole thing? I remember seeing the desert at the beginning. Sure. And Memorable. maybe a train blowing up. I yeah. kind of remember seeing that. Oh. That's it. That's what I got. You stayed awake to the second half, at least, then. I had a completist attitude even then. Like, I'm going to see this movie. <laughs> I'm going to be able to say I saw this movie. But what did I take away? I, I really don't recall. Well, Andy, you got to say that you saw this movie on a podcast for all these listeners to hear. Hey, everyone is listening. I've seen Lawrence of Arabia. Have you? Yeah. How many times have you seen it now? Oh, a lot this past yeah, week. Yeah, me too. Because <laughs> once wasn't enough to go on air and talk about it. Yeah, it's a lot of movie. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to process. It really is. I did have the memory. I asked you because I definitely had the memory of when I was watching the movie, realizing that, oh, yeah, when I saw this when I was younger, I definitely thought they were calling him Orange. Like, because he's blonde or something, that's what I thought. Why are they calling him Orange? It's not really clear. Oh, I mean, I can answer the actual question if you want. Because in Arabic, they're parsing the L at the beginning of his name like it's a definite article, like L or Al at the beginning of a phrase. So, right. Like when Omar Sharif says... He says El Orange is better. Yeah, El Orange. So essentially they're hearing it as the Orange, so they call him Orange. 
Right. I guess I did know that. So anyway, when I went to watch this movie, I mentioned it to a few people. And I actually, I heard a lot of people say, oh, that is one of my favorite movies. That is one of the best things ever put on film. I'm aware of a good number of people who are of the opinion that this is just the bee's knees. And I, upon watching it, well, I don't think I'm ready to say that I agree with that. But I do want to say that I kind of feel like that attitude is cool. (laughs) <laughs> like I get the cachet of saying <laughs> this is the greatest film. It's It feels big and special, and I think it's cool. <laughs> it seems cool to me to say that it's uh, your favorite. There's some layers there. You're saying a very particular thing. You are not saying that it's your favorite, and you're not saying that it's cool. You're saying that saying it's your favorite is cool. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Does this relate to what you said in a different episode about how you used to feel pretty good about saying Vertigo was your favorite score because it's classy and it's classical and you want to have the cachet of choosing that? Is this the same kind of thing? Like Lawrence of Arabia is a high-toned choice for your favorite movie. Uh, Yes, but also I feel like I do mean for this feeling about it that I have to reflect on the movie itself. Like I think it is a movie that at least supports it being cool for it For, for you to say that it's your favorite movie. Like, I get it, is what I'm saying. Well, I didn't encounter anyone in my own personal life who thinks it's the bee's knees, but I know that that's out there. I know it's up on the tops people's lists. I know it by its reputation, mm-hmm. and uh, I went into it open to that. I'm not sure I got all the way to thinking that it is cool to think it's cool, but <laughs> it's not uncool to think it's cool. I don't think this movie is my favorite or has become my favorite, but I am totally down with people who... Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying, too. I don't think that it is either my favorite now. I think, in fact, I have some problems with it, but go ahead. Yeah, all I'm saying is that I get it. All right. To people who say that, I get it. It's got heft. It's got uh, sweep. It sure does have heft and sweep. Uh, Yeah, so you took the time to make sure to see it on a pretty big screen, didn't you? Yeah, I did. You kind of arranged for this? Yeah, and thanks, David, for letting me do that. Because as I understand it, that's a big part of the Lawrence of Arabia experience, is that it's spectacular vistas of the desert like never seen before, and it's beautiful photography, which I have to agree with. It's just fantastically photographed, and that you want to be bowled over by it in a theater with a lot of sound and a lot of light and a lot of color. And so you got closer to that this past week than I did. I was watching it just on a little screen in my room. So that might have affected your impression compared to mine. (laughs) I can understand being blown away by how it looks and how much cinematic oomph it has on a big screen. But the movie, the script, the stuff that happens... I guess I'll say that my notes to self as I was watching it were, I understand why I was confused by this as a kid. (laughs) It's kind of confusing, and I am not sure what it adds up to. So maybe you should tell me what it adds up to. Is this a character study? Is this a historical retelling of a moment in history? Or is it kind of a historical excuse to put the desert on the screen? What is it? What's going on in this movie? I think it is definitely all of those things at the same time. I mean, it's about this complicated guy who has a complicated place in history, and I admire it for being willing to embrace his complexity and really putting many different aspects of his story on the screen. You know, this was made the same year as How the West Was Won, the first movie we talked about, and it kind of has, in some senses, similar ambitions about being a grand, enormous thing to look at. Production, yeah. A big production, and we're going to, you know, crank 
cram as much stuff into your eyes as we can. Right. From the pages of history. Yeah, from the pages of history, too, sure. But, you know, How the West Was Won is this very sugar-coated idealism about its subject, and this uh, isn't. And I admired that. And, you know, the contradictions uh, landed for me and felt meaningful, felt worth thinking about. I think for me... I was, I mean, should I launch into talking about the score here? Or do you have a way you want to get to the score? Let's see if we can get through the whole episode without talking about the score. We get there sometimes. <laughs> we get close to that. <laughs> here, maybe I'll introduce our discussion of the score with a quote I found when I was looking into stuff that Maurice Char said about his score. Mm-hmm. This is a quote from an interview 40 years later, looking back. He says, I didn't use any Arabic instruments. It was music from a Western point of view about Arabia not from the inside. And that is clearly what this music is. And I, as a viewer and listener to the music, want to know why. Why is that how this movie approached its subject matter? It felt like a movie that took kind of a Western imperialist adventure, daring do in the sands kind of attitude, and then complicated that rather than a movie that went in trying to look for the complexity of history as it found it. Hmm. It's sort of an adventure movie that doesn't come from the Arab point of view at all and then complicates and problematizes that, but that's the movie that it has chosen to be. So I I just felt a little confused the whole time. Like, you're the ones who told us that this guy is a hero and that this (laughs) is heroic. And now you're telling me, oh, but maybe it isn't, which... I could have told you from the beginning, you know, maybe it isn't, but that's the choice you made. So I just felt a little lost in it, and I felt like the music's choice to be, as he said, a Western point of view on this, not real Arab music, kind of seemed similarly to me like a reflexive choice that was trying to pass itself off as a considered one. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it definitely is a Western approach. It seems to me that the nod to the Arab world in the music is this, you know, semantic scale that the tune is playing around on. Yeah, with these wider intervals. So, you know, the theme, which uh, you sure hear a lot. You sure do. (laughs) You sure do. It consists of a falling interval... And then a rising figure. And that rising figure is describing this, you know, very archetypically Middle Eastern scale. Right. There's a few spots where he takes those rising three notes and just sort of treats them as an arpeggio and twiddles up and down on the theme. And it just sounds like some kind of, you know, Arab noodling, like a snake charmer kind of a thing. pretty confident that's where he got those three notes from is oh you know i'll take a middle eastern scale sure and that is one of the actual scales used in actual middle eastern music so there's some legitimacy to doing that Mm -hmm. but uh, you know you would also agree with his characterization that this music is not oh yeah it's not arab music it's not based on arab tunes yeah it doesn't attempt to sound like the real culture of a real place it's an exoticized fantasy of the desert right it's about the experience of having an adventure in this far-off foreign place. It's not about what that place actually is.
But I think what I thought was really interesting in that quote you read, what did he say that it doesn't get inside? That's right. From a Western point of view about Arabia, not from the inside. Not from the inside. I think that's kind of a telling thing to say. I did feel like this music was not inside this movie. It was not inside this story. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a general form of that. I'm talking about the specific case of was he inside the Arab culture, which would have, I think, informed my understanding of you know, what the point of this all is. Mm -hmm. But yes, just generally, the music tends to be garnishing the visuals and not working the drama at all in the score. Yeah, the score doesn't work the drama. And the drama, a lot of the drama still really worked for me. There are a number of really great, I thought, scenes that have no score. Like the whole sequence where Lawrence has to execute this guy, who is the guy that he rescued from the desert. And right. Uh, I thought that was a great scene. There's mm -hmm. stuff at the end when he goes to the hospital and when he's dressed up in the Arab clothes, the British officer comes and yells at him. And then when he sees him again in the British army uniform, he shakes his hand. And that was the guy we saw at the beginning of the movie bragging about how he shook his hand and the irony. Good thing I watched it twice in one week so that I could pick up on all of that because <laughs> I did not pick up on that stuff the first time through. I did. You it's, did. You yeah. picked up that the guy who says I shook his hand once in Damascus at the very beginning. He was a very great man. Did you know him? Now, sir, I can't claim to have known him. I once had the honor to shake his hand in Damascus. Then three and a half hours later, he's the medical officer who shouts at him when he's in the Arab robes. Yeah. Outrageous! And then still later, he is the meek little guy at headquarters who wants to shake his hand. May I shake your hand, sir? Just want to be able to say I've done it, sir. I, I had forgotten by that point. But then I watched it again and I remembered. Haven't we met before? Don't think so, sir. No, no, sir, I should have remembered that. Well, I thought that really landed, that connection. That was such a powerful, to me, encapsulation of, you know, the myth of the man as juxtaposed with the reality. And there's no music for that. There's no music that even approaches that throughout the movie. Everything that I've been saying about this complex character and the different sides of him and the sort of progression, the arc that he takes... The music is not doing anything about that. It just doesn't have anything to say about that, which I, I was kind of wrestling with, well, I guess that's a criticism of the score, but I mean, I still like the movie. I, I, st I still enjoyed watching it. I mean, so I'll lay down some theses here that you can sure. debate with or not. The movie is powerful because it is beautifully photographed and expertly staged and edited because David Lean and his cinematographer Freddie Young and his editor Anvi Coates were at the top of their game. Yeah, no doubt. And the score comes after those things are true. Yes. The score just has to not ruin that. Right. And successfully does not ruin those things. Yes. Thesis number one, check. You're on board. Yes. Two, the score makes a bunch of, I think, errors about what it attempts to do that, because of the quality of the movie making, don't drag it down. Mm -hmm. But the thing you were just talking about, I see as an actual unforced error, kind of a mistake. The mistake being that he makes the big theme mean both the desert and Lawrence himself. Right. And... The way that Lawrence is characterized as this enigma, what is a person really? He's all these different layers. He doesn't know himself. Is he right. destined for greatness? Or is he just a regular person thrust into greatness? Or is he just following his whim? Or is he thrusting himself into greatness? That's right. Is he sort of forcing this to compensate for his background or, you know, any number of psychological explanations for what we see going on here? 
that complexity is supposed to be central to the drama and it does not comfortably or sensibly match up with the sweep of that melody. which is wonderful for that first shot of the dunes, the enormous landscape. Yeah. Perfect to have that big sweeping melody. Can't beat it. It shouldn't mean Lawrence, it should mean that. It definitely does mean that. You know, it really hammers how much it means that. That whole sequence, the first sequence where we see the establishing of the desert and we see him and his guide riding their camels. Every time that we cut to a wide landscape shot, we get a downbeat of this big theme. Every time, you know, desert, wide shot of the desert right. <laughs> and you know even by the end of that sequence boy I'm, I'm getting real negative here I'm going to say some things I like about it later but um, <laughs> even by the end of that sequence which is the first you know six minutes or something in the desert I already started to feel like you have anything else yeah any other <laughs> ideas for what you could do with yeah. this You know, I might have misled you by coming out with saying that uh, I think it's cool to say that this is cool to say that this is cool, whatever meta <laughs> appreciation I, I I tried to say. But yeah, I kind of am a little relieved that you are also coming from a critical point on the score, because I definitely agree that there are errors. And I am also prepared to say that there are some cues in here that are just outright bad cues the bad musical compositions. <laughs> and <laughs> I think there's good ones too. We'll flip around between positive and negative throughout this conversation. You know, just like Lawrence himself, I think that there is both good and bad in this score. <laughs> yes, that's right. Let's do a podcast episode that's like the movie in that it keeps surprising you by flipping from <laughs> praising the thing to criticizing the thing. Do you think that he set out to write a score that had some good points and some bad points to <laughs> reflect the main character? I don't think that that is what he set out to do. <laughs> to finish the point I was making about how the tune shouldn't be Lawrence. Yeah. Yes, it's perfect in that sequence, like you said, although it kind of wears out its welcome mm -hmm. pretty fast because he overuses it. But then take the cue in the second half of the movie when Lawrence is strutting around on top of the yep. train and all of his Arab troops are cheering for him. This uh, adulation, I think he calls the cue. He plays the theme and then he sort of makes it discordant. Yeah. And that discordant quality is all he can do to try to get anywhere near mm -hmm. the complexity of character with that is the point of this. So, you know, look at this guy. Maybe he's gone a little bit crazy trying to get at some sense of greatness that he can't really have. You know, just a minute earlier, we were seeing him stand sort of caught in the headlights while someone was shooting at him, just completely blank, letting himself get shot at. And now he's waving his robes in front of the sun, trying to be like a sun god. Mm -hmm. And the music, all it can do to try to engage with that is be discordant, you know, put some tritones in, make it a little bit clangy. It's weak, you know, it's like someone trying to reach for something that they are too short to reach. They're like That theme is never going to get mm -hmm. at any of what we're interested in in this moment. Uh, he sets himself up for that from the beginning by not really coming up with material that relates to the stuff the movie is really interested in. Yeah, I agree. 
Can you name what you think is your most favorite musical moment in the movie? Because for me, it's super clear what is the best, most effective musical moment in the movie that connected with me and really made me feel something. I'm going to actually try and think what my answer is before I let you say yours. Let's see. I like the question. What is my favorite musical moment in the movie? Hmm. I think that the most effective scoring in the movie Mm -hmm, for me mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. the very bare percussion rapping Ah. when the guy is in the burning desert. Okay. (laughs) I thought, hey, this works. You know, all of that sweep was kind of outsized, you know, just trying to be big. And this is an actual musical idea that actually corresponds to the feeling of this in an interesting way. And I thought, you know why this works? Because Maurice Jarre was a percussionist and he actually has an intuitive feeling for what you can do with percussion. I think the percussion stuff in this score is the most sort of inspired. Uh, what's your real answer? Well, that's a good point. And I think that he does set up some interesting sounding sort of textural ambient pads in a few spots. And that kind of percussive rattling and beating fits very nicely into that. So my spot is the climax of that same sequence. So Lawrence has convinced these Arabs that he's met up with to cross this uncrossable desert. And once they get past this particularly brutal stretch of it, they realize that somebody has fallen off their camel and has been left behind. And Omar Sharif says, we can't go back for him because he's already as good as dead. And Lawrence, with his, you know, egotistical hero complex, says, I'm going to go back and get him. So he does. So he goes back and he picks up this guy and carries him back on his camel. And meanwhile, one of these two kids who glom on to Lawrence goes out on his camel and waits for him. So then, sure enough, Lawrence has rescued the guy, and we see the kid's point of view of him as just a speck on the horizon, and he gets closer and closer, and the kid gets really excited and rides his camel out to meet Lawrence, and as he's doing that, we get this big heroic statement of the main theme. And this, for me, was so head and shoulders the most useful and effective use of hearing that melody. The shot of when the kid is riding his camel, the camel is running and he's yelling with happiness and waving to Lawrence and he feels real admiration and excitement about what his new friend has just done. And the theme is there. It feels to me like this is the only time when that theme actually gets tied to an emotion that the characters have. Suddenly, this swelling panoramic vista feeling that the theme has been giving us up until now, now it gets equated with this swelling pride and excitement that the kid feels for his new hero. It has to do with a feeling. It connects with an emotion. It really struck me how it pretty much only does that in this one spot. That's the only time. Yeah. Yeah. It's very well observed, and you're right. And that moment did work for me better than a lot of other moments. My level of engagement there was, I think, a little less than it wanted. So I didn't notice my heart leaping up with the music quite as much. But you're absolutely right that if ever it was going to, it would be there. Yeah, that's the moment when it seemed like the score kind of dips down and got 
for a moment actually inside what was happening in the story. The rest of the time, it really is just at arm's length. It's just about the geography and the wide sweeping views of it. The music kind of treats it like, uh, hey, wouldn't it be great if, you know, you were listening to this music while you were watching the screensaver on your Apple TV? <laughs> <laughs> The movie is better than the screensaver on your Apple TV. Some of those are really nice. Yeah, I know. There's the desert one. And this movie doesn't have like a polar bear swimming. So, <laughs> But yeah, I have to feel for him. If you imagine being brought onto this production that's been going for more than a year mm-hmm. and you start being shown the footage and it's this amazing landscape photography of the desert, like nothing that's ever been in a movie before. And they tell you it's going to be four hours long. <laughs> and now, you know, go write some music for it. Boy, it would be hard to get inside the task in a sophisticated enough way that you could be like i'm gonna shape your four hours Mm -hmm. it's very natural very sympathetic to me that he would think when they show a picture of something beautiful i'm gonna play some big beautiful music and that's my assignment let me just try and keep doing that when they ask me to i mean that definitely is the right thing to do though that's what he's got to do well it's a right thing to do i thought back to for example our conversation recently about the godfather about how if you get at the right concepts at the right time, you can subtly, subconsciously guide the audience to experience not just each moment of the cinematic experience, but also the conceptual links behind it. You can lead them from idea to idea to contrary idea, and that is important to getting through three and a half hours of scenes that some of which are kind of parallel to each other. And what does that parallelism mean? This music never helped me with that, and I felt by the end that Hmm. I needed help. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think it's an interesting comparison to The Godfather because, you know, in that episode, I was saying that it was kind of surprising to me to realize how much happens in The Godfather without any music. But everything in The Godfather works so beautifully, and the music on its own is so memorable that if you were just casually thinking back on The Godfather, you might be tempted to say, oh yeah, I bet there's some music playing when, you know, such and so interesting dramatic scene happens, and there's not. But it's because Rhoda, yeah, like you said, really curated the ideas that he was going to be amplifying with the music so well that you kind of feel the music's presence even when it's not there for so much of the time. In this movie, there's a lot of stuff that happens, a lot of the dramatic scenes, a lot of dialogue scenes. I think pretty much all of the dialogue scenes happen with no music. And I don't have that feeling about this movie. Like, it's pretty easy for me to <laughs> to look back and remember, oh yeah, that scene definitely didn't have music. Mm-hmm. Uh, that scene didn't have music. Mm-hmm. Because the music didn't attach itself to the ideas that the movie is about the way that The Godfather did. Yeah, to you know elaborate on what I think the errors are in the choice of material here, there's the theme. <laughs> We've heard it a bunch of times. We talked about how you hear it a lot in the movie, and I said it kind of is doing double duty when it shouldn't. And then what other material is there? There are a bunch of discrete pieces of recurring material, but they all have the same meaning, essentially. They are all (laughs) Arab material. You can imagine him sitting down to write the score and having written like five different lines on his, you know, cheat sheet of music he's written da 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 Lawrence of Arabia at the top. And then under that, he's written a bunch of different things. They are one that goes da 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 Okay, then his next line probably has on it da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
that's for like that's for horses that's for horses maybe like hay although it's for camels in one scene too it's just for like a lot of galloping and then his next line has on it da 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 right That's Arabs. That's Arabs. Wait, what were the other two? Also Arabs. And then his final line has what I think is an interesting thing on. I'm making up that it's on these different lines, but I had the sense of him referring to some kind of here's my themes page. Sure. His other theme that I identified is the thing you hear right at the beginning of the overture, which I said I liked when it's used in the desert. There's a rhythm. Dun, 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 Which is kind of a cool rhythm. All four of those things that aren't the Lawrence of Arabia theme just mean the same thing as each other. Arab action. And he shows this by, whenever he uses them, just using them in one series or another, or putting them at the same time as each other. They occupy the same space, and he fills up the space with it. for the entire score. Is there other material that I'm overlooking? Yeah, there's one other theme that is explicitly his not-Arab theme. It's like the British theme. Oh, of course, of course, the main title theme. Yes. It's the thing that you hear over the actual credits, the opening credits, because we've already heard the marquee theme in the overture that plays over a black screen before you even see credits. Mm -hmm. So that British theme is what he sets up for like Lawrence's home and his heritage. You know, we hear that kind of poking its head into the middle of Arab stuff a few times. done more with that like he maybe could have tried to use that as part of his development of the conflict inside of Lawrence's head but really it just kind of shows up for comic effect like when he doesn't know how to ride a camel or when he's shaving in the middle of the desert that water is wasted Yeah, it's like English in quotes. It's a comic overture piece of music. I mean, it doesn't really suit anything other than here we go at the beginning Mm -hmm. and then a couple of comic moments, as you say, yeah. And even in the main title, doesn't that main title feel a little odd to you? Because the visual is this long, attractive, top-down shot of him getting his motorcycle ready. And we hear in alternation... Like your Gilbert and Sullivan operetta is about to start or something, alternating with sweeping Arab desert love theme from Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> And 
the alternation doesn't correspond to anything we're seeing. We have to try and interpret it sort of consciously. I already felt like the director and the composer weren't really talking to each other very much, and it doesn't feel meaningful to me. That's a good point. It felt disorienting. Yeah, I was surprised when I heard this sprightly little yeah, operetta music, you know, over the title, over the words Lawrence of Arabia appearing on the screen, and not hearing the main theme at that moment. And then once I was already not hearing that, I was kind of waiting to see if I would, and then when it did show up, I was like, well, why on that card? Yeah, there's no real sync going on no. there. But that in itself can be interesting because you think, who is this guy? How does he embody both of these things? How are those both inside this guy? And that question somewhat serves the movie. Yeah. It's just such a blocky, over-obvious way of treating the issue. It's like, here's some... English music, and here's some music for Arabia, because this is an Englishman who went to Arabia, and how do those things fit together? It's like so schematic that you don't actually experience it as anything. Okay, so I've been pretty negative for a while. Let me say some stuff I like. (laughs) I cannot deny that that theme, the big theme, Mm -hmm. is good. It (laughs) has a power to it that is not just a cliche. The theme has become a cliche, but I can't think of a precursor to quite the way it works, the kind of spacious quality that's in the rhythm that corresponds to the vastness of the landscape. There's something inspired about it. You said that those rising notes come from the Arab scales, but they're harmonized in a way that's somewhere in between. Mm -hmm, That's true. It's not a pure faraway land sound. It evokes that, but it also evokes traditional European classical music and indeed Hollywood movie music ideas about how to convey yearning or the sensuous experience of awe of the desert or the feeling of being swept away, of being moved by these landscapes, which does feel very sincere in the movie. And I was reading about the making of it, and it sounds like David Lean really did feel profoundly stirred by the places he was getting to photograph and felt like we're doing something that has never been done before. And then when he heard this theme, he said, yes, that is it. That is what my movie is about. And to the degree that the movie is about that, and that theme is there matching up with it, I feel like this score is on the mark. Yeah. That moment, which surely is what they played on the AFI's concert when they used little snippets of each of these movies. Yep. Surely they played the sun rising. Uh He blows out the match. Great edit. He famously, in a very tight close-up, blows out the match, and on the... We switch to an actual sunrise just as the sun creeps over the horizon, and then it crossfades, I think, quickly Mm -hmm. to this enormous, beautiful vista. Now, when the crossfade happens and we see the beautiful dunes and hear that music, it's wonderful. Yes. The sunrising bit that comes right before that. Yeah, I was about to ask you about it's that. It's a little lame. It's a little lame. It's a little lame. It's just some some going up. It's just a little bit of going up. Now, let me ask you about this. Yeah. We hear in this little moment, we hear this zither that is throughout the score. What do you think about that zither? It is prominent. Uh, Maybe it wasn't as prominent for you, but I, every time <laughs> it was in my ear, I was like, there it is again. ting a ting a ting 
Do you have thoughts about that zither? <laughs> Maybe I will once you tell me your thoughts. I thought it was serving the role that you'd think would be served by some token ethnic instrument that really evokes the place that it's from, but it doesn't at all. I mean, there is such a thing as a Middle Eastern zither, but this isn't used like one. It didn't, to me, suggest that sound. It suggested a kind of insensitivity to what the sound of the region might, in fact, be. So every time it showed up, I thought, here's some weird idea he had that that (laughs) instrument was the perfect signifier. When he would have it doing little doodles, like when the sun is coming up, or when there's a dust devil, or they're in the sandstorm, and you see these spirals of dust, and it's like... felt conspicuous and unconstructive that's how i felt about it this uh this music we're listening to here for this spiral of dust yeah let's listen to it it's it's not great music right (laughs) i mean (laughs) yeah earlier when you said there's some cues that are just bad what did you have in mind okay uh (laughs) there's one that stands out to me as really pretty bad what do you think it's gonna be oh i don't know you could go any number of ways with this okay it's when he stays up all night pacing around the desert thinking of uh (laughs) the plan to attack akaba from the land yes yes i could have started here i mean (laughs) this sums up the problems with the movie as a whole and the music as a failure to help me solve those problems what is the point of this? Is the point that he is like Jesus and he is a white savior? Or is the point that he... What is the point of the sequence? <laughs> so we're talking about this scene where uh, he, he's had this strategy discussion in Alec Guinness's character's tent, Prince Faisal. After the other English officer and Omar Sharif leave, Alec Guinness pulls him aside and they have a little more intimate chat. Well, no and he says, what we need is a miracle. We need a miracle. And so Lawrence takes that as his cue. Well, I'm going to deliver a miracle for this guy. And he goes and he paces around the desert all night long, (laughs) thinking of what to do. And at the end of the night, he has this intense look of... Intensity. It's an intense look of intensity on his face. And he's squeezing a rock and he says, Akaba, by the land. Akaba. Akaba. From the land. What gets us from point A to point B there is this music. Which again, I ask you, just listening to it, is this good music? I'm going to be on the record here. I think that this is bad music. (laughs) I think that this is a very amateurish way to conceive of not just a film cue, but like what to do with music. It's just a series of rising diminished chords. I mean, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like uh, King Kong climbing the Empire State Building is what it sounds like. Right. We already made fun of this kind of music when it was for action. But Steiner at least, you know, had the chops to like fill out an orchestra and make it sound... This just sounds so lame and just threadbare of ideas. 
Yeah, this is the psychological equivalent of what we made fun of in King Kong. Yeah. That was physical motion upward and like, oh, it's moving, huh? And this is like motion of thought. Like, oh, he's thinking, huh? Yeah, thoughts have to climb their way up from his feet into his head. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. Yeah, the impression it puts across is of some arbitrary amount of time that was designated to need this feeling in it and I filled it out. Like I'm saying, it really matters to the meaning of the movie what the meaning of this scene is. I can understand even the screenwriter's idea that, well, it could have many meanings and it will be a stimulating image that we reflect on. This man alone in the desert, pondering, trying to seize destiny out of the air. What does it mean? Let's reflect on that. But once the music gets in there, it can't be as coy as that. Mm -hmm. It has to seize on something true. There's just a kind of shying away from knowing what it's about that the music does that, for me, as a music-sensitive viewer, uh, feels like a big shrug. It feels like it kind of is like, who knows? Who knows what this is? Just take it for how it looks. I mean, on the other hand, I think it's being too forceful. It's really trying to make some point of arrival. Like, this is a build-up progression. Him coming up with this idea to attack Akaba, attack Akaba. No. No? No. I apologize to the citizens of Aqaba. (laughs) Like, it's this journey that he goes on. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It should have been playing. I wish it had had the chops to play it with more of a shrug to actually convey some ambiguity. Or just, you know, you do something that's a little bit orthogonal to it, you know? The movie is focused on the guy thinking. You can play some theme that reminds us of his self-doubt that we kind of noticed earlier or reminds us of his past or reminds us of something else for us to add to the mix. Yeah, something that encourages us to imagine what he is thinking about instead of just marking the fact that he is thinking. Yeah, I started mapping out on my third time through the movie this week because I was just trying to get a handle on what was going on. I thought, what should there have been themes for? I think that that desert theme is beautiful, perfect. That is the desert. Then there should have been a theme for Lawrence that should have been something that dared to be about his psychological roots somehow. Maybe something tentative and innocent and mysterious. Something that dares to do a quick sketch of this guy's needs and the movements inside of him. You just do it with a flute or some simple lyrical thing that isn't declarative, yes, but brings us into a space of wondering with him or about him. And if we had had that thing, and it could have just been with very delicate gestures, have brought in a whole field of thought for us and of feeling in many scenes that could have used it. But he didn't have that. No. I also think that there should have been a piece of music that corresponded not to Arabs as a spectacle of like a lot of guys on camels and a lot of guys waving guns and swords and being severe and foreign. (laughs) There should have been some music for the plight and the political aspirations and the experience of the Arabs. And even if you don't want to do it the authentic route where you take actual Bedouin music 
which exists, you know, like, of course, there's music you could have gone to. Sure. If you don't want to do that, you still could go someplace. You still could incorporate those emotions. Feelings, yeah. Yeah. It could have been mournful and hopeful and stirring in some way that corresponded to them being stirred. Yeah. Like of the four Arab things he wrote, none of them had to do with what it feels like to be an Arab. And that is part of the movie. I mean, like Omar Sharif's character and Anthony Quinn's characters yeah. and Alec Guinness's characters, like their desires and their plans and, you know. Their souls are at stake, too, and nothing for that. Yeah, really nothing for that. And again, just once you establish those things, you don't need to do very much with them because you've opened up a whole space that the audience goes to every time you ring the bell. Yeah, how about a theme for the relationship between Lawrence and uh, Omar Sharif's character, Ali? You know, that's a deep and complicated relationship that changes over time. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, here's something... Let's talk a little bit about the history of the writing of this score. Uh Why did Maurice Jar get this score in the first place? Well, I read that the original conception that David Lean had was that he was going to get three different composers, one to do the score and then one to write British music and then another person to write Arab music. Yeah, I have a history of it that goes through several different schemes, all of which fell through. The first scheme Uh was that Malcolm Arnold, who was a notable British composer who had written the score to Bridge on the River Kwai, David Lean's previous movie, would write the score to this one. Just to be clear, he did not write the march that they whistle in Bridge on the River Kwai. That was an existing piece. He wrote the rest of the score that you probably don't remember. (laughs) And then (laughs) Sam Spiegel, the producer, said what would be better than that is if we get Sir William Walton, an even more dignified British composer of film scores and concert music. A classical composer. He would write material and then... Malcolm Arnold would arrange it and, you know, do the film scoring tasks and then all the more prestige. But they couldn't get that to happen. So then Spiegel's next idea was that there would be British music written by Benjamin Britten, who was about, you know, the classiest, most prestigious British composer of the time that there was. Another classical composer who I think did not write any film scores. Yeah. And that the Arab music, the eastern half of the score would be written by Aram Khachaturian, who was mm-hmm. a very prominent Soviet composer, Soviet-Armenian, who used some Turkish-Kurdish music occasionally. Having him write Arab music is kind of a stretch, but in the mind of a film producer, <laughs> that would be a legitimate, prestigious way to get, quote-unquote, eastern music in your score. Yeah, I mean, look, they put Alec Guinness in as an Arab, and Anthony Quinn himself is Mexican. That's right. And is playing an Arab. With a prosthetic nose of dubious taste. <laughs> you know, I also thought Alec Guinness as an Arab, and then I looked up a picture of Prince Faisal. He looks a lot like Alec Guinness. It's true. I read that once he was in makeup that he was actually getting mistaken for him. Yeah, I also saw Anthony Quinn saying that when he was in makeup, some of the, you know, extras who were there had actually known Auda Abutai and were shouting his name, Auda, Auda, there he is. So as far as the actual matching photographs go, they did okay with the casting. But I mean, they're all great actors and they're great performances right. too. But so. as far as this movie being a Western eye view of, the, you know, yes, no yes, question. Exactly. But anyway, yes. Benjamin Britten couldn't do it in the two months or whatever it was going to take, and Aram Khachaturian couldn't leave Soviet Russia. So it wasn't going to be either of them. At that point, Maurice Jarre was hired. He had written some film scores. He was a French composer. He had worked in concert and theater music and had written some film scores in the last few years, which is how Sam Spiegel had encountered him. But he was not a major composer. I mean, these are all like shooting for the stars in terms of prestige of who's going to write your music. 
they hired Maurice Jarre to be the coordinator of the material that these famous classical composers were theoretically going to deliver. They were going to need some guy on staff to sew it all together and do the unrewarding part of film scoring, the labor part that, yeah, maybe Benjamin Britten wouldn't want to do that. We'll get this guy, Maurice Jarre, to do it. But then that fell through, and Sam Spiegel's last plan was to get Richard Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein to do it. Yeah. The story I read, which is why this came to mind in the first place, is that <laughs> Rogers wasn't going to come out and see the movie. He was just going to write them a bunch of themes, material. And again, Maurice Shar would put it together, make a film score out of it. And they finally got delivery of some material in the mail and, you know, had a demonstration meeting where a pianist played it for them. And it included a love theme. <laughs> and that was part of them thinking it was absurd and missed the point of the movie. But here we are having a conversation. Maybe a love theme might might have helped. Yeah, a love theme for Ali and Lawrence, sure. Yeah, I think it's not quite as absurd as they seemed to take it as. Anyway, <laughs> Lean and Spiegel both thought, well, what is this? What's going on? And apparently Lean said, hey, you kid, Maurice Shar, who was in his late 30s. I don't think he was a kid, but there is this sense of like, yeah. he's just the young guy that they hired. You've been on staff for a few weeks. Did you write anything? Do you have any material? And he sat down and played the theme which he had come up with because he thought he was going to have to write, you know, connective material no matter which of these schemes came through. And Lean said, yes, yes, you get it. You know what my movie's supposed to sound like. You're going to write the score. And then he had a very short amount of time to do it. Boy, I would love to hear what Richard Rogers wrote and sent them. I know. I dug and dug. <laughs> I want to hear it. Boy, Oklahoma in the desert. He wrote other stuff. That's true. You think it's absurd to begin with? I mean, it's a crazy choice to go to him, but he was a talented guy. I wonder how that movie would have played. No, no, of course. Sure. But anyway, I do think some of that history kind of comes through in the score. It sounds a little like the score written by the guy who thought he was just going to be the additional music guy and then he turned out to be the main music guy mm, yeah it feels a little like additional music that has been expanded to fill up the whole time the whole running time <laughs> yeah i agree and i don't mean that as a knock against maurice jar it's just a kind of the execution of this huge task leaves something to be desired for me so the orchestrator that was hired to work with Jarre for this picture is named Gerard Sherman, and he, in an uh, interview that he gave much later, described the process of orchestrating what Jarre gave him in a very uh, unflattering light. <laughs> he said it was basically a nightmare to have to decode and flesh out what Jarre was giving him. It left a lot to his discretion to actually make it into an orchestral composition, that's what he said. I don't know exactly how much credence to give it, but probably some is worthwhile. Here, let me read a quote from this article where he says... At the end of a week, I decided there was really nothing further to be gained from our regular meetings, and his sketches were thereafter delivered to my home by hired car. Jar's indications continued to be lamentably vague or lacking altogether, but I had learned to use my initiative to an extent unprecedented in my experience in the role of arranger and orchestrator. The percussion parts were always written out in full, sometimes taking up five or six staffs, while the rest of the music had to content itself with merely one or two. Yeah, and that substantiates what I said earlier about how the percussion parts are the most authentically composed by Jarre. I mean, that that was his zone. But I've really negative this out. So you should go back and say some other good stuff about it. <laughs> okay, uh, here's something I did like. So I think part of Spiegel's idea of getting these different guys to do different musical styles was that one of the different styles that he wanted represented was British military pomp. Right. Like, I wonder if that's what Rogers wrote, actually. Boy, that would have been fun to hear. But there is this military march that gets played a couple of times in this movie 
that I thought had a wonderful effect. So Lawrence has this harrowing odyssey through the desert. He loses his friend. He is haggard and doesn't know who he is and stumbles back to Cairo, goes to the officer's headquarters there. As he is being debriefed by the general, they start taking a walk out of the general's office and we hear this military march playing. We don't actually see like a military band, but I definitely got the sense that it was kind of supposed to be source music, like it was being played there, don't you? Yeah, it's layered in in the sense that it's only coincidentally accompanying the scene. I think we start hearing it when somebody opens the door or something. Right, yeah. This kind of washes over their conversation. They take this walk down the stairs and around the building and stuff. This is a real turning point for Lawrence because he thinks he's done. He doesn't want to go back to the desert. He's been disabused of his you know, hero complex. And then by the end of this conversation, somehow he's all ready to go back and he's listing off all the military necessities he's going to need from the general. It kind of happens suddenly. You turn around and like, wait a minute, I thought he said he was done. But this piece of music, the way that it comes to the fore and dominates what we're hearing for this little stretch, it's almost the only explanation we need about this change of heart. It makes it feel like this this very architecturally important point. It really puts a node in the story here. It's like a pillar or a fulcrum that other things revolve around. And of course, it's heavily juxtaposed with all of the Arab themes, like you were saying, that we had been hearing up until now. Now, all of a sudden, we're back in the world of the British military with all of their pomp and rigor. Somehow, this atmosphere is enough to turn Lawrence back around. Yeah, I think that's a great piece of scoring, too. And I don't know if you've said it explicitly, but let's be clear, that is not by Jarre. <laughs> that is an existing piece of music. That, in fact, is by Kenneth Alford, the composer of the Colonel Bogey's March from Bridge on the River Kwai, who is apparently known as the British Sousa. He was like the British March King, and I guess David Lean had a thing for putting that music in his movie. So that's just a real march that's stuck in there. And yes, it plays real well. It adds... It plays really well. It adds a sense of irony, too, which I think is yes. sorely needed in a lot of places in this movie. Definitely does. Yeah, it's ironic because it suggests that there are layers that they're talking about one thing but it's in the context of a different thing the promises being made about british involvement in arabia are suspect having this stark juxtaposition really helps the movie here yeah and i think that if i'm being honest i i think i thought jaw wrote that so <laughs> uh, well you know why you thought he wrote that tell me because he sticks it in his overture as though he wrote it yeah that's why he takes time with it in the overture it's called the voice of the guns by kenneth alford it was assigned to him that that would be in the movie and you know he actually does something with it he adds his own counter melody If you listen to the authentic Kenneth Alford version of The Voice of the Guns, this little counter melody isn't in there. Oh, I thought of that that was like the piccolo part or something. It sounds like that. It sounds like in a Susan March where there's a piccolo counter melody. Yeah. But uh, that is a jar addition. Okay. And then he does take that and try to do things with it later. It becomes sweeping music in the desert sequence that we were talking so much about in this spread out way. Da 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 da. Oh yeah.
which on paper is kind of a cool idea. Yeah, that is the sort of connection that we were saying he didn't really do. But <laughs> boy, it really seems like we needed to take out a magnifying glass to find it. Yeah, exactly. It's like I said earlier, it's a scheme, but it's not something you experience. Yeah. And I do think that the scheme is probably a remnant of the original plan to have someone write English music and someone write Middle Eastern music. When Jar got the job himself, I think he probably just had that lingering in his head. Okay, I'm going to write English music and Middle Eastern music. And it was like he was told, this is the analysis of the drama that applies to you. And then he just believed it. Yeah, I was about to say, I wonder if Spiegel actually deserves some of the blame for the kind of stuff that we're criticizing here, that he had this top-down idea. It didn't wind up being an artistically organic way of presenting the story emotionally it might have hamstrung Shar. so in this uh in the next cue when lawrence is standing in the courtyard and all of the english soldiers are staring at him because he's wearing the arab robes and looks like this foreign creature mm -hmm. and you hear this flute that's uh you know the middle eastern flute to signify his foreignness and then he approaches them and then sort of the moment switches there's a there's a break and someone holds up a beer and they start patting him on the back and saying good show old boy and at that moment you hear a cheery english march and it is not the voice of the guns melody it's jar's counter melody i actually like that cue i thought that did a nice job of resonating with him not knowing who he is, you know, am I an Arab? Am I British? The guy in the motorcycle, when he gets to the Suez Canal, yells at him, who are you? And echoes in his ears. And Who are you? You know whose voice that is? Uh, mine. That's David Lean. Oh, cool. Yeah. You told me when Steven Spielberg was in Jaws, so I'm telling you when David Lean is in Lawrence of Arabia. Well, now we're even. You know who else makes a cameo in this movie is Who's that? the screenwriter Robert Bolt. He is the guy with the pipe who is staring at Lawrence in the courtyard scene we just talked about. Oh, yeah? You know, he's been on the show before, that guy. He has. We talked about him as the writer of The Mission. Which, uh, I feel like the issues with the mission uh, are similar to the issues here. The historical material is complex, and resolving that into music that makes sense of it is tough. I mean, that's just a tough assignment. Yeah, it was a tough assignment, and we didn't quite cotton to how Morricone navigated that assignment when we were talking about the mission. I remember you saying that when you have a wide range of viewpoints and contributing factors to a complex situation, if you want to make a movie about them, you have to do more than just list them and stack them. And that the screenplay to the mission just listed them and the score stacked them, which, you know, you credit Morricone with. He had the skill to come up with these different ideas that represented the different factions involved. And he found this actually really exciting way to stack them on top of each other and have them surprisingly coalesce into a coherent combination in this one spot in the movie. But then that technique sort of betrayed him towards the end of the movie, or maybe it wasn't even him because it really seemed like uh, it was uh, post-production editing that was... Yes, they definitely fiddled with it. Yeah. yeah, they fiddled with it. They tracked a bunch of his pieces, you know, in this disconcerting collage. It's just, you know, some kind of confusing conflict on the screen, and there was a confusing conflict in what you were hearing, and it didn't wind up becoming a thing that meant anything. This movie avoids that. You know, this movie takes a totally different approach. This score does. 
And that approach is just to stay the heck out of the way. You know, there's all these competing ideas about Lawrence, and there's different factions of people trying to do different things in the movie. And I think all that stuff, you know, actually wound up making it onto the screen with more success here in Lawrence of Arabia than it did in the mission. Oh, definitely. definitely. But the score didn't really get in there with it. You know, Jacques does have a couple places where he seems to be trying to stack things or recast them in forms that match up with each other. Like, there's this one cue. This is when Lawrence and the Harith fighters first head off into the impassable desert. And you can hear in this that he is trying to compositionally weave together a bunch of his different tunes. point of view as an audience member this weaving adds up to nothing it's there's certainly the sound of someone trying to work some ideas but they don't really link to any ideas as far as i can tell you know listening to ourselves make all of these critiques i feel a little bad because i feel like it sounds like we're saying that in order to write a good film score you must come up with umpteen different melodies each of which corresponds to a specific thing in the film and then you have to come up with this mathematical relationship between them and it must be strictly representational the whole time and we're faulting it for not to i mean certainly you can do that in music and we've talked about examples of that being done really really well on our show but i think what's more important than that is getting the emotion right yeah yeah being able to divine what the emotion the audience should be feeling during a scene should be and whether or not you're able to do that by engineering a thematic relationship that uh, intermeshes with the thematic relationship for the other thing is a little bit beside the point. Yeah, uh, oh, I I agree with that. I am not saying that the correct music for a complex situation is going to have a one-to-one relationship yeah. to that complexity and match it. What I'm saying is that music is always going to be like a big knife that cuts into whatever is there. And you have to make that cut along exactly the right line. Hmm. You have to cut it in a way that respects the grain and respects the shape and knows what forms you're going to end up with after you make the slice. You know, a well-chosen theme. This is what I was saying about maybe there should have been a theme for Lawrence's internal life. That, in its way, would have been blunt. You know, it's going to have some big emotional claim that it's making. But that claim has to, it has to understand the thicket of ideas into which it's being inserted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying about matching complexity. Yeah, it, well, it has to make an emotional claim. And I think at the end of the day, that's what I am missing in this score, is an emotional claim. You know, the most convincing emotional claim, like I think we've said, is that, hey, look at this desert. And then that one moment where the music says, that feeling that you got when, hey, look at this desert... You can also feel it when, hey, how about this guy being a hero in the desert? When it makes emotional claims like that, it really works. But I just wish it had thought of more claims to make. I guess, in a sense, the commonality with the mission here is that Robert Bolt has set the composer up (laughs) by writing a screenplay that resists strong emotional claims. Right. Because that's his attitude towards material. Yeah. It's sort of asking for both a delicacy and a boldness, because music is going to be bold, it's going to be music, (laughs) 
And that's very hard. That is interesting that we wound up sort of feeling similar feelings about the difficulties and shortcomings in the score in the same way for these two movies that had the same screenwriter. And that just goes to show how closely tied to a well-told story a great score has to be. You know, I think the giveaway for that in this movie is how much of the story the score sits out of. There's practically no music at all in the entire second act of the movie after we get back from the intermission. All this crucial stuff happens to the character. He's tortured in a Turkish prison. Then he kind of goes crazy and massacres this whole column of Turkish soldiers. And then there's this shot of him looking in his reflection in his dagger. That is sort of the bookend of the earlier scene when he looks at his reflection in his dagger when he first gets his robes. You know, man, I wanted to score that moment when he's looking at himself. What has he wrought killing all these people? Mm-hmm. Who are you? Yeah, you know, all of the crucial, like, who am I stuff that I think is still <laughs> makes for a great movie. It's just doing that without any help from the music. Yeah. So where does that leave this score on this list of scores? I have a clear answer, I think, where I want to put it. But what do you think? I have a clear area that I want to put it in, but I don't know exactly where to put it. All right, well, go ahead. Tell me your area. Well, I thought of how Roja and Ben-Hur does so much better of a job of the just matching what's there, just giving scale and heft and spectacle to things. He just delivers that consistently. He never shies away from it. So it's got to go below Ben-Hur. I agree. And Roja just has, I mean, just better chops. Oh, yeah. The craft is excellent. Right. Yeah. He's just a better stylist. Just feel totally taken care of when you're listening to the score of Ben-Hur. I agree it's going to have to go below Ben-Hur. Then I look at Out of Africa, a movie that wanted to be in the genre of Lawrence Arabia and John Barry, who kind of wanted to write a score that evokes the feelings of the famous Lawrence of Arabia score. Hey, did you notice that John Barry's Born Free tune that we played in that one, his famous tune from Born Free, is kind of a Uh plagiarism of Lawrence of Arabia? Oh, gee, yeah, it starts off that same way. Huh. same rhythm and i think john barry wanted to put across the feelings that lawrence of arabia gave him in a lot of his scores so yeah i think this is better than that i agree i think that it accomplishes more and is more apt and just feels better than that so far i'm with you so i'm looking in this territory right around where i have the mission Uh so it comes down in my head to which is better is it better to try some ambitious stuff that never quite gels and never quite gets there but and I'm talking about Morricone here, but that is both musically and sort of conceptually interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see the mission as. Or is it better to just do a superficial thing and do it with force while some of the greatest filmmaking in the world goes by and, you know, just ride the coattails of that? I think that I like the mission more. It's just more interesting to me. And I'm going to put this right below that. But I feel a little weird about that because the mission is a really frustrating and unrewarding movie. And it's a little weird to put this below that. But I'm talking about the score. And as scoring goes, I feel like this is just lesser work than that. So that's where I'm going to put it. And that's right above High Noon, which I kind of feel is about right. I feel like the impact of this was stronger than High Noon. Yeah, I agree that it's better than High Noon. It's going to go above High Noon on my list. It's going to go between High Noon and Ben-Hur as well. I am really sympathetic to what you were just saying about the quality of the mission. And I definitely like... I mean, I like Morricone as a composer much better. 
and I like a lot of the music that's in the mission better than this music. What I was struggling with was I definitely do feel like I need to give the score for Lawrence of Arabia points for that establishing sequence of the desert, because that, as you said, is truly transcendent and magical and iconic in the history of film music. You know, I mean, that's why it's at number three on a list. It's for that one shot, really. Yeah, it really is. And you bask in it. It's glorious. And, you know, kudos to them for recognizing the ability to bask in a scene like that with the help of the music. I mean, because that really is what music can do. And when it connects like that, it is wonderful. And it no doubt connects for that theme and those beautiful shots of the desert. I think that's worth a lot. Man, I really don't know what I'm going to do, though. The spot I had picked out for it before we started recording was right underneath Mm Ben-Hur, above on Golden Pond. You know, as we got to the end here, listen, I totally get putting it underneath the mission. I support you doing that. But yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and go with my first instinct because the power of that one association between that music and that photography really is glorious and transcendent and important to cinema and important to film music itself. So that's enough extra points to bump it up to underneath Ben-Hur above on Golden Pond. Totally works for me. Makes sense to me. Ranking this one so low relative to the others is the most sacrilegious thing I think I've done. You know, the most against the grain of the... Yeah, I think you're right. I want to grant this that I understand why it's so high on someone else's list, the AFI's list. Because this movie, you know, it's not in very much of the script. It's really just in the visuals and the music that what it's really about is this call of the desert. And if you told someone it's going to be about the romance of the desert, they might say, why? The desert, <laughs> as uh, I think Alec Guinness's character says, Prince Faisal says in the movie, Arabs don't love the desert. They like uh, trees and water <laughs> and fruit. Like only a crazy Englishman would love the desert. The movie has to explain to you why there is romance in this deadly anti-human place. And I think uh, Lawrence says it's because it's clean. (laughs) There's just a kind of deep understanding of what that appeal is in how it's photographed and then in this music getting in there and understanding it. In that mutual understanding of the feeling of the desert, like it carries this movie's reputation a long, long way. I think that almost anyone who starts to pick apart the dramatic architecture of this movie will have to admit that you know it's not a perfect construction but most people just do not care because there's such a powerful thing in that conception of the desert there and i get that i'm all for that so it's just because of the very particular way that we're analyzing things on this show that i'm putting it down there for these reasons that we're always talking about i mean i'm putting it down there too just a couple notches higher than you but i'm glad you said that to make me feel better about putting it as high as i did okay you know andy there are only two more movies on this list My gosh. You don't say, John. I hadn't noticed. I did say. No, I have. I've been counting very carefully. Hey, John, last time we said some false things about this one. Oh, really? We said, hey, is it the longest movie on the list? And like, no, no, Ben-Hur is probably longer. No, this is longer than Ben-Hur. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure the next one is longer. And then we said, oh, but it must be the widest one on the list, which was laughably wrong. Right. The widest movie on any list is How the West Was Won. Of course, because it's three screens wide. Yeah. How could we forget? What were we thinking? What were we thinking? And thank you to those listeners who chimed in to point that out to us. As well they might. I think that the distinction that Lawrence Arabia did have is it is the movie on the list in which the star gets the furthest from the camera. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's as far as the eye can see, literally. Yeah, I don't think there's any movie where 
the star goes farther from the camera. Well, let's see if that gets contradicted <laughs> when we watch Gone with the Wind, 1939, and the score by Max Steiner. Mm-hmm. Reappearing, but in a very different genre from the previous time we saw him. Right. I've seen Gone with the Wind, but not recently. I don't think that there is a giant ape wreaking havoc in it, but we shall see. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. Come along with us. Watch four hours of movie Gah. with us. We're going to watch it like two and a half times because it takes so long to process where all the music is. Andy, I uh, I have a terrible confession to make to you. You don't like watching four-hour movies? <laughs> That's a boast. But uh, the confession is that I uh, I have never seen Gone with the Wind. I have only seen it in exactly the same way I've seen Lawrence of Arabia, that as a kid I thought, well, for my checklist, I need to have seen this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a checklist movie, all right. Boy, I did not understand what was going on. I just didn't have the attention span. I was just waiting around for the famous stuff to happen. Yeah. And I remember being distressed by how much it really had to do with what the characters were saying to each other, which, ugh, the worst. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for caring enough about what these two characters have been saying to each other to stick around and listen to us. And hey, if you have bothered to listen this long, uh, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Those really help. And you, too, can be one of the people pointing out things that we got wrong on Twitter at (laughs) Scoresettlers. Yes. We need more. Always more corrections. Yeah. Is that it? That's it. That's the end of the things we have to say, except for the dopey uh, non-ending that we always do that's our signature that's how you know it's <laughs> yeah this show people love it because it ends with a murmur <laughs> ready you want to murmur together uh. <laughs> <laughs>